I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word in chapter 1. Again, this morning, for the purposes of getting the full context, which is very important, we're going to begin the reading in chapter 1 at verse 16. This is more important. In order for us to rightly receive and believe and respond to God's word, let us ask his blessing upon us. O gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel of your Son, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will send forth the Holy Spirit upon us afresh to open our minds, enlighten our understanding, open our hearts, convict and convert us more fully into a more faithful life. We ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Let us hear the word of God, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever. Amen. This morning we are digging deeper into this section of Romans chapter 1 in which Paul is giving us the divine diagnosis of the fallen human condition. That is, the divine diagnosis of our fallen human condition, apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ received through faith in him. It is not a pretty picture. The fallen condition of human nature, corrupted by sin, in in addition to which Paul is setting forth the divine indictment of all humanity, the divine indictment against us as we are in our fallen state, inclined toward all evil, at enmity with God, dead in trespasses and sins, helpless, hopeless, guilty, without excuse. Now this passage, along with others, provides the biblical foundation for the doctrine of original sin, the guilt with which and into which we are born, indeed into which we are conceived and brought forth. And you have the reading from the shorter catechism there printed in the bulletin. I call your attention to that for further reflection this afternoon. It is the corruption of our nature at the root of and throughout the totality of our personhood. And therefore, the inevitable outgrowth of all our actual sins. Think of it this way. Sin is the disease. Sin is the disease. Sins, plural, are the symptoms of the disease. Okay? C.S. Lewis put it, we are, because we are terminally ill... With sin and inevitably produce sins, we are a ruined species. That includes us as members of the fallen human race. This passage and everything in it, this passage and everything in it is about us and applies to us as we are in our fallen human condition, which we share with all humanity. This passage is not about just those people out there. It is about all of us in here. Who we are, who we would be, that includes me apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, received by faith in him. Now, this section, which we've called the bad news, begins at chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. It continues to chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3.20 is the bad news for all humanity. Jew and Gentile, the whole corporate mass of humanity, 
None is righteous, no, not one. Or as Paul sums it all up in Romans 3.23, all, all humanity, Jew and Gentile, all humanity as a whole, humanity as a single corporate entity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the divine diagnosis and the divine indictment in Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20. But here's now what you've got to see. This section of the bad news is sandwiched in between the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Before Paul begins to tell the bad news about the fallen human condition, he first of all declares the good news of the gospel. Remember in verses 16 and 17 where we began, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it the gospel... The righteousness of God, a right standing with God, is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now the declaration that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, you see, is the introductory good news statement which leads into this section about the bad news of human sinfulness. And then, after Paul has laid out the bad news about all humanity corrupted by sin, concluding in chapter 3, verse 20, he then repeats the good news at chapter 3, verse 21, saying, the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God, a right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He, he, in essence, he repeats what he said at the very beginning. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's the point. The bad news is sandwiched in between the good news. Or we might say this very ugly picture of fallen humanity is shown to us within a very beautiful frame, the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's that telling us? Paul is telling us that this world of fallen humanity, this world of ungodliness and unrighteousness, this world of idolatry and immorality, guilty, without excuse, is the world which Jesus Christ came to save. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So just remember, The ugly picture of the bad news about all humanity in our fallenness is framed by the good news of salvation for a world of idolatry and immorality through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're ready to look at a specific portion of chapter 1 which calls particular attention to the depths and degree 
of the fallen human condition in verses 24 through 27. But remember, ultimately, it's about all of us. And note, this passage about sexual immorality comes immediately after the verses in which Paul indicts fallen humanity for the sin of idolatry. Get this, Paul is telling us that the root of idolatry in the fallen human condition ultimately bears the rotten fruit of immorality. There is a connection, and in one way or another, it applies to us all. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Very carefully now, remember, Paul is giving us the divine diagnosis of the fallen condition of all humanity. At this point, he points out as exhibit A, as it were, one extreme and shocking manifestation of this fallen nature, which is in us all. He intends that we see ourselves in these verses, even though we may not commit this particular sin of sexual immorality. It nevertheless reflects the corruption that is in us, which we share in common with all humanity. What Paul is saying in these verses is that this this shocking reality of homosexual behavior, this most vivid picture of the, the sinful corruption which is in all humanity, is simply the the logical outgrowth of the sinful nature which is in all of us. Now, before we go further, I'm going to pause for a side comment, but I promise I'm not going off subject, okay? Today is Reformation Sunday. Read the bulletin cover later. At the time of the Protestant Reformation in 16th century Europe, there were two major theological controversies. The first, which we focused on two weeks ago, was the doctrine of justification. How can sinful man stand in the presence of a holy God? Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by reading Romans 1.17 
Remember that? That's the sermon from two weeks ago. You can get it online. The righteousness of God, a right standing with God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That verse was for Luther the gate of paradise. Here's the point. Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel by studying the scripture. And that point leads us to the other doctrinal controversy of that day, which was the doctrine of authority. The authority of the scriptures versus the authority of the church, that is the authority of the Pope and of the Roman church councils. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the Pope in his teaching office were equivalent, having the same level of authority. Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers, such as John Calvin and John Knox, said, No, the scripture alone is the supreme authority above all others. And the Pope and church councils must submit themselves to the authority of the Scripture, the Word of God. Well, today in America, a different controversy rages about authority. And it's not about the authority of the Bible versus the authority of the Pope. That's another subject. Rather, it's about the Bible versus me. The Bible's authority versus my authority. The Bible's authority versus my authority to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong. The Bible's authority versus my authority to choose for myself what is best for me. It's about the authority of the Bible versus the authority of my personal experience and my personal autonomy, self-law. That's where we are in America today, including American Christianity. And that's the reason that Christians who submit themselves to the supreme authority of the Word of God will increasingly find themselves opposed by the dominant culture, which is absolutely committed to the ideology of the absolute authority of the individual. And this applies in a number of ways, but in none so clearly as in the area of sexuality, in all the myriad forms of confusion and chaos which are now sweeping over the national landscape. I've struggled in the preparation of this sermon, and I will tell you that I, I can't cover every question, every concern, every scenario about homosexual behavior in this sermon. This is not a seminar on the topic. I know, I know that it is a sensitive issue. I know that it's a troubling issue. I know it's a painful issue. And I know that it's a personal issue. I know that it's a personal issue. 
So all I can begin to do in the time remaining is to begin. God willing to to teach you with God's help what the Bible says about homosexual behavior, particularly from Romans 1. Now, first of all, generally, the Bible clearly, consistently, uniformly identifies homosexual behavior as sinful behavior. That's a fact. I know that there are those in the liberal mainline denominations, in their seminaries, in their bureaucracies, and in their pulpits, who for the last 40 years have taught and continue to teach that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says about homosexual behavior or that we have newer and better ways to interpret what it says. That is simply not true. If words have meaning, the Bible means what it says. Again, a general comment. One of the most popular comments, facile statements that you will hear on some TV talk show or from some pulpit is that, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. You've heard that. That statement is fundamentally untrue. It is fundamentally untrue whether it is made out of honest ignorance or with the deliberate intention to deceive. It is fundamentally untrue, first of all, because Jesus very forcefully, very forcefully affirmed and defended the sacred, indissoluble, one flesh union of husband and wife, male and female, as designed by God in the beginning. Secondly, Jesus spoke clearly about sexual immorality defiling a person, Mark chapter 7. And Jesus, being a faithful Jew, knew that all sexual behavior outside the covenant of male-female marriage was sexual immorality. And he knew that the law of God referred to homosexual acts as abomination, and he in no way contradicted or contravened that. Further, Jesus spoke matter-of-factly affirming the just destruction of Sodom. So the next time you hear it said, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, just remember that statement is fundamentally untrue. And furthermore, according to the logical implications of that statement, Jesus never said anything about incest, pedophilia, or bestiality. But oh yes, he did. Don't be bamboozled by the truth twisters. Another thing to beware of is the use of the word progressive. As though the normalization and celebration of homosexual behavior is proof of an enlightened, progressive attitude and worldview. That is simply not true. Homosexual behavior, so-called homosexual marriage, even 
sex change operations as much as they were able to do, were all part of the ancient Greco-Roman world. Nero, the Roman emperor, at the time this letter was written, was a prime example. Sexual immorality, including homosexual behavior, had the support of the politicians and the cultural elites even then. The ideological movement, the ideological movement today is not progressive. It is aggressively regressive, regressing into the spiritual darkness of ancient Greco-Roman paganism. So let's now get to chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. It's important to understand here that Paul is not on a tirade or a rant against homosexual behavior. True, he is certainly identifying it as ungodly, unrighteous, and egregious sinful behavior. But here's the point. Remember the context. Paul is analyzing and assessing the depth and degree of the fallen human condition, particularly as manifest in the Gentile world, but which affects all humanity. He's looking at all humanity, fallen in sin, and and he's addressing the question, how did humanity ever become like this? What happened? Now, let me use an illustration. This is just an illustration. When a house catches on fire and burns to the ground, down to the slab, a fire investigator goes to the site to determine where and why and how the fire began and spread so fast that the whole house was consumed before firefighters could arrive. How did this happen? You have the same reaction when you see the ashes of what was once a big, beautiful house. How did this happen? Another illustration, illustration. A 35-year-old man in great shape is working out one day and suddenly collapses, dead on the ground. What happened? How could that be? Heart attack, stroke, aneurysm? So the coroner orders an autopsy to find out. Now those are shocking illustrations. And the shock is part of the point. Paul is surveying and assessing the fallen condition of all humanity. He is walking through the ash heap of a once great and beautiful house. He is conducting an autopsy on the corpse of a once strong and vibrant young man. He's asking, How could this happen? What happened? How could it be? How could it be that humanity, created in the image of God, male and female, for the glory of God, for the purpose of reflecting the Creator's image, living on the earth as the princes and princesses of God's creation. How how, how could it be? How how could how could it come to this that humanity, created in the image of God, male and female, he created them, for one another, quite literally created for one another? For the procreation of humanity. 
to, to fill the earth with God's image bearers, to, to serve Him on the earth for His glory so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. How could it come to this? How did this happen? What happened? That women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. How could could this happen to a glorious and beautiful humanity created in the image of God? And Paul knew also, because he tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, that when God created Adam and then Eve from Adam's wounded side, He was not only creating male and female for one another for his own glory. He, God the Father, was also performing a prophetic and symbolic act. Namely, Adam symbolized Christ. And Eve, formed from his wounded side, symbolized the church, the bride of Christ. Therefore, says Paul, the one flesh sexual union of husband and wife In the covenant of marriage signifies the mystical union of Christ and his bride, the church. This was intended to be the crowning glory of the union of man and woman as one in marriage. That their union would be a sign and symbol of the union of God and humanity through the union of Christ and his bride, the church. And so in surveying and assessing the reality of the fallen human condition, Paul asks the question, how did the glory of humanity, male and female, come to this? That men and women would act in ways contrary to their created nature as male and female and thus mar and deface the glory of God in such a distorted and egregious way. What happened? Paul tells us what happened. Idolatry led to immorality. Rebellion against the Creator logically resulted in rebellion against one's own creation as male or female. Worship of idols led ultimately to the worship of self in homoerotic behavior. Paul tells us what happened. God gave them up, which is to say, God gave us up. This is about us. This is about all of us. God gave fallen humanity what we wanted. Humanity in unrighteousness suppressed the truth. Humanity all exchanged the glory of God for idols. Humanity all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Humanity all fell into sin and fell into idolatry. And so God gave them, us, up in the lusts of their, our hearts to impurity. God gave them, us, up to dishonorable passions. In other words, in God, in his just judgment, let humanity have what it, we, wanted. We rejected the creator and therefore we rejected 
our created nature as male and female. We refused to worship the Creator and therefore ended up worshiping ourselves even to the degree of homoerotic behavior. You see, this passage is not simply, it is not merely, it is not just about homosexuals in a special category all their own. Because there is no special category of homosexual. There is male and there is female. There is male and there is female. That bears repeating today. There is male and there is female. There's not a third category. There is male and there is female and there is homosexual behavior. This is not about homosexuals in a special category all their own. Homosexual behavior in this passage, listen, here we go, this is it. Homosexual behavior in this passage is representative. It is a representative expression of all sinful behavior when taken to its logical extreme. This is the trajectory of our sinful nature. This is what happened as a consequence of the fall into sin and idolatry happened to all of us, to all humanity. We share in this brokenness. We share in this fallenness. Now the Apostle Paul specifies homosexual behavior as a shocking illustration of the depth and degree of the corruption of human nature, but his point here. His point is that that corruption, the same corrupting power is in us all. We're all born that way. Conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. And we all, therefore, are subject to the same just judgment. We all are included and implicated and justly accused in this indictment. When the scripture says over and over and over again, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up, it's referring not only to specific individuals who may be inclined toward and fall into and pursue homosexual behavior, as we will see next Sunday, the Lord willing, in the final passage of chapter 1, it's talking about all of us in our fallen corruption. And that's the shocking point that Paul is making about you and me this morning in these verses about homosexual behavior. Now that's not to minimize sin. It's not to try to reduce it to some least common denominator. Well, we're all sinners. No, 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 no. That's not the point. It's not to say that all sins are equally sinful. No, they are not all equally sinful. Every sin deserves the wrath and punishment of God. But not all sins are equally sinful. So it's not to minimize the egregious degree of the sinfulness of homosexual behavior. No, not at all. But it is simply to show us. It's simply to show us how horribly corrupting, defacing, and destructive sin is. The same sinful nature which is in all of us. You see, you remember that ugly picture that ugly picture of sinfulness, which is in the, the beautiful frame of the gospel. 
It's not really a picture. It's a mirror. It's a mirror in which we see ourselves. Paul wants us, all of us, to see the depth of the corruption at the root of our personhood. And he wants us, all of us, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, the power of God for salvation, for a world of idolatry and immorality. And he wants us to know that the way of salvation, which is the only way of salvation out of this world of idolatry and immorality, is the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He who through faith is righteous shall live. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of truth, which convicts us of our sin, and the word of the gospel, which shows us the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Grant us grace to believe, and to cast ourselves upon the mercy of a bleeding, dying Savior so that in union with him, in his victory over sin and death, we might have everlasting life. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand and affirm our faith, saying responsively the Heidelberg Catechism, number one, one of our historic Reformed catechisms. Christian, what is your only comfort in life? And in death, my only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit His purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. Amen.
turn with me to the celebrations and concerns of the church. Please remember in your prayers, Lola Long, Al Miller, Martha Henry, and Richard Lewis, who all uh, are continuing to recover from illness this day. Uh, we also extend our Christian sympathy to, uh, to the family of Al's Bell to skip, um, and also to the family of Barbara Lee, who both have entered the church triumphant. Please remember those families in your prayers. Uh, one prayer concern which is not listed in the bulletin, uh, but uh, should be uh, in your prayers. Uh, one of our EPC missionaries, Andrew Brunson, uh, who is a missionary to Turkey. Um, and I knew Andrew uh, through a friend of mine, a guy named Semi Shender, who served with me in South Carolina. Semi uh, grew up Muslim in Turkey and was brought to the Lord uh, through Andrew's ministry. Um, Andrew is in prison in Turkey. He's been in prison for crimes against the state, uh, false crimes, uh, but uh, I encourage you to be in prayer for him for his release. Let us turn to the Lord and ask the Lord for help in our time of need. Well, knowing God, you discern our thoughts and are acquainted with our ways. Before a word is on our lips, you know it altogether. You lay your hand upon us as Christ calls us to minister. You fill us with your Holy Spirit who leads us by your wisdom and counsel. You guide us throughout our journey's length, forgiving our waywardness, equipping us to serve you, and fulfilling our needs. Nothing we can do escapes your eye. There is nowhere where we can hide from your spirit. You are within and without, before us and beyond us. O God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we give you praise and thanksgiving. Hasten the day when our love for you matches your mercy for us. Enlarge our hearts to the dimensions of your mercy and help us to return to you a measure of the love you give to us. Forbid it, Lord, that we would be turned over to our sinful desires. Rather, purify our souls with continuing assurance of heart and save us from our love of idols and vain display. Strengthen us whereby we may serve you more effectively and glorify your name through obedience to Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Heavenly Father, this day for those who have gone before us, who have been pillars of the faith, who have helped to build the foundations of our trust in you. You have set an example for us of love and faithfulness through their lives. They have taught us what it means to believe. They have walked the paths of righteousness so that we need not stumble. They have taught us what it means to confess our faith in ways that are faithful to your holy word. They have left a legacy of determination for us to follow in order that your gospel would be proclaimed, that the poor will inherit your reign, the hungry will be fed, those who weep will eventually laugh, and those who are ridiculed will leap for joy, for surely their reward will be great in heaven. We thank you for the saints who surround us now, mentors and teachers who continue to open to us the truths of the gospel. We thank you for disciples who help us to see new vistas of opportunity to witness to your abiding love and care for all people. Help us to boldly proclaim your gospel and to 
offer hospitality that others might hear your call to come and worship and serve you, the one eternal God. For we know that in so doing, we will extend that great heavenly banquet table where the risen Christ is host into our lives here and now and hasten the day when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Even as we await that great day, we cry out for you to hear our prayers. We lift unto your care, Lolo Long, Al Miller, Martha Henry, and Richard Lewis. Provide your healing and restoration that their bodies might be made well again and be strengthened unto your service. We lift unto your care the family and friends of Alice Bell and Barbara Lee, who mourn this day. We especially pray for Skip. Grant that they might feel your presence surround them. By the power of your Holy Spirit, provide them with the grace of your peace, which surpasses all understanding, with an assurance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who goes before us into death. And remind them that you promise to comfort those who mourn. We also lift unto your care Andrew Brunson, our missionary who is imprisoned in Turkey. We pray that you would soften the hearts of officials in Turkey, that all charges against him would be dropped, and that he would be returned with his wife to the United States. For we offer up all of these prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us heed Paul's word who encourages us as God's dear children. Take Jesus Christ as your pattern. 